Now God is going to take that idea and hit it hard in the second part of, of the prologue. So now what God is doing is he is flashing back right back to the day of Joshua again. And we're going to go through this again. But now we're going to get more of a God commentary on it. So in chapter 2, verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, back to the beginning again, the Israelites went to their allotted portions and territories intending to take possession of the land. And the people worshipped Yahweh throughout Joshua's lifetime as long as the elderly men who outlived him remained alive. Remember, that was how the book of Joshua ended. So now we're getting the theological commentary. Now it's not, hey God, who should we go first? And hey God, we're going to defeat the enemy. Now it's, they're worshipping God. But they only worship God as long as the elderly men live. These men had witnessed all the great things that Yahweh had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, Yahweh's servant, died at the age of 110. And the people buried him in his allotted land in Timoth, Harris, and the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And that entire generation passed away, and a new generation grew up that had not personally experienced Yahweh's presence or seen what he had done for Israel. This is a huge commentary. God specifically said they had not personally experienced Yahweh. His presence or seeing what he'd done for Israel. You're very tempted to immediately think, oh, that kind of makes sense. They didn't see the Red Sea crossing, and Joshua and Caleb did, and they didn't see the Jordan River crossing. They didn't see the miraculous defeat of Jericho, because that was their parents. But the problem is, he doesn't specifically say that specific thing. He says they had not experienced personally his presence. Well, that's way more than just a crossing of a Red Sea and Jordan. And they had not seen what God had done for Israel. Well, God kind of made it clear that like, he was going to do miraculous things. At the end of Joshua, he said, Joshua, stop and leave the rest of the conquering of the land for the next generation because I'm going to be with them and they're going to conquer the land. And the assumption is the only way they can take the land is if God does miraculous things, so he's going to do it for them too. So the real point is this. The parents failed to teach it. I get that you can do everything right. I get that there's no guarantee that all three of my daughters are going to turn out okay. I, I get that one can walk away, two can walk away, something like that. I, I get that there's no guarantee that you can do everything right. I mean, God does everything right and most of the world has walked away. Jesus did everything right and most people rejected him. The, the, your children accepting or rejecting is not a direct commentary on you as a parent. However, if an entire generation walks away, there is a finger that can be pointed at parents. Not maybe every single parent, and nor can we say that every single parent failed, but enough parents failed that those who were doing it right got overshadowed in a cultural kind of a way. Because we know that America is kind of going downhill morally and all that kind of stuff. But we know that a lot of parents have gotten it right. A lot of kids have turned out great. There's lots of great godly people in every generation are doing it right. But they're becoming less and less and less because they're getting overwhelmed by a greater culture. And the reality is when it says the entire generation is not experiencing God's presence, an entire generation is walking away from God, an entire generation is just completely failing and going into idolatry, the parents successfully obeyed God, 
but they failed to teach. I've been around long enough to know that being a godly person who can trust God and do amazing godly things is completely different than your ability to pass it off to the next generation. I know a lot of parents that I greatly respect in our school as incredible men and women of God who are doing a lot of things, but I also know they are failing miserably of passing it off to their kids. And I don't blame them. I, well, I do, but I sympathize with them because I know as being a Bible teacher, I feel like I should be doing an awesome job with my three daughters, but it's a lot different when you've got little teeny kids than high school kids. And I feel like I'm a lot more gifted with high school kids than little teeny kids. I get that it's really, really difficult and it's really challenging. And so I have great sympathy and empathy for the parents who struggle. And I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but at the same time, there's obvious things that they're failing. And I know they're going to be able to point out a lot of things to me, but hopefully as a high school teacher seeing this, I can learn now <laughs> and, and, and get it right. Not perfect, but do things well. And that still doesn't guarantee anything, but the reality is passing it on and living it are really two different things. They are. And I don't mean to throw any guilt or any judgment at anybody's feet in this room, because I know a lot of you have already kind of raised your kids, but passing it on and living it are two different things. And I think we've made the mistake of thinking if I live it, then I'm passing it on. And it's not always true. And this generation has failed. And I don't mean this generation, but the generation in the book of the Bible has failed. And the whole generation has failed to see that lived out before them. So that brings us to verse 11. The Israelites did evil before Yahweh by worshiping the Baals. They abandoned Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods, the God of the nations that lived among them, around them. They worshipped them and made Yahweh angry, and they abandoned Yahweh and worshipped Baal and Asherahs, or Ashtars. It can go either way. This is your direct commentary. They're doing evil because they're going after other gods. And the two gods he specifically mentions is Baal and Ashtar or Asherah. They're the same thing. Now, Baal is the storm god of the Canaanites. He's the most high god that they worship, like Zeus. In fact, Baal is going to later be named Zeus by the Greeks, Jupiter by the Romans, and Thor by the Europeans. It's all the same god. Baal is the storm god that rules over the Canaanites. And he controls the storm, which means he controls the rain, which controls fertility in the land. And fertility of children, fertility of crops, and security of borders are the three things that people desire the most. Even today, if you think about it, those are really our three basic desires. Good families, food, and safety. But all provided all three of those things. And so they begin to worship. Now, I understand the temptation because Baal is the physical manifestation of healthy children, food, and safety. And this is what we worship in America. We pour more money into national defense than anything else. We pour tons of money into education and food for healthy children and eating and that kind of stuff. And in a way, we worship these things. We don't have an idol that represents this thing, but we do have company logos and so we bow down to these company logos in different kind of ways, not in a worship ritual way, 
but in an economic dependence, they're going to take care of my family kind of a way. This is very tempting. I think a lot of times we think, oh, how stupid do you have to be to go worship a false god like that? But if you just translate it into corporations with logos and you're pouring tons of money into them, thinking that they're going to take care of you before you even pray, well, we're no different. They're going after these idols. And then Asherah, she's a fertility goddess. She's a goddess of family, sex, and children. And so she provides these things as well. And so they're tempted to worship this because they worship an invisible God that has required them to trust him in an obedience kind of a way. And it's very tempting to go after a visual, tangible God that just requires a sacrifice. And that's tempting. It's very tempting to go from a human, moral, obedient responsibility to accountability to a moral God that you cannot see and turn to a very physical, tangible, visual thing that just requires you to just fork out some money. Forking out money is easier than obedience in relationships. And, and idols are more visual than an invisible God. In some ways, yes, they are horribly evil and wrong for doing this. But in the other sense, I can sympathize with it. I can understand. Because we do it too. And they begin to turn to the thing that is easier, more instant gratification, and more visual than the thing that requires more long-term perseverance and work and moral accountability that you cannot see. And we do the same thing. Those are our idols. Visual, instant gratification results with no moral accountability. That's much easier. And a corporation will provide that for you. But God expects moral accountability, perseverance, and he ex expects faith. And that really is, if you think of idolatry that way, one of the ways to think of idolatry, then you realize that we're no different. We may not have a statue, but we do have logos. And so they begin to go that route. And, but God calls this evil. Verse 14, Yahweh was furious with Israel, and he handed them over to robbers who plundered them. He turned them over to the enemies who lived around them. They could not withstand their enemies' attacks. And whenever they went to fight, Yahweh did them harm, just as he had warned them solemnly and vowed that he would do. They suffered greatly. Now, this is part of that apologetics, a defense for Yahweh's reputation. He always making it very clear, he did not become weak and fail them, and robbers and oppressors came in. They sinned and did evil in his eyes, and he handed them over. He opened the doors. This is not the weakness of God. He opened the door, and when they cry out and repent, he will close the door again. And that is the book of Judges theological commentary. When you sin and do evil, God opens the door to the world. This is Romans. Because they pursued unnatural sexual desires and pursued idolatry, God gave them over into it. And Mr. Eitan, as I said, the worst thing that God could ever do to you is give you what you want. <laughs> That's God's greatest punishment, is to give you what you want. He's giving them what they wanted. They wanted to live with the people. They wanted to compromise. They wanted their gods. And God says, here they are. 
And that's most of the time what God allows to happen. Most of the time, God's judgment is not active where he sends a lightning bolt and says, gotcha! Most of the time, his judgment is, you don't want me? You don't want my protection? Fine. Hands off. Because have you ever thought about all the things that could happen to you every day? If you ever wonder what could happen to you today, turn on the news. <laughs> the car accidents you could have gone into, the, 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 the cancer that all of a sudden just you wake up to and realize it's in your body one day. The, 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 all the, the relational dysfunctionality, friends and family leaving you, horrible violent crimes. There's so many things that could happen to you every day. And you think about how many close calls that you've had throughout your life. Oh my goodness, just in construction alone. I can't tell you how many times I've called up my wife and I said, now, I'm okay, but <laughs> that's what God does. He says, if you don't want me, and he just backs off and he allows the world to happen. We have no idea what God is protecting us from every single day. And you think about all the bad things that are happening to you, it's like, but all the things are not happening to you. And that's God's most primary form of punishment, is to give you exactly what you wanted. And a lot of you want to smoke, lung cancer is coming. It's just to give you what you want. He, he doesn't protect you. That's his punishment. He stops protecting you. Because you said... You didn't want his protection anymore because you're putting your faith in something else for your protection. And it fails you. Because the doctors and the lawyers can only go so far. Now remember, I'm not advocating like a Jehovah Witness, like Christian science, like no doctors, no lawyers, no nothing. It's just where do you put your faith? Do you believe that God is working through the doctors? Or do you believe the doctor is going to fix it? Do you believe that God is working through the lawyers and the government and the system? And he can manipulate it any way that he wants, even if it's broken? Or do you believe the system is going to fix it for you? It's where your faith is. It's not that you can't use these things. It's where your faith is. Now, here's your cycle. So they sinned. They're now living with them. Yahweh raised up leaders who delivered them from their robbers. But they did not obey their leaders. Instead, they prostituted themselves. Now, that's a very powerful word for idolatry. It's not that they just worship other idols. They prostituted themselves to these gods. They sold their bodies, their lives, their minds, their souls to these gods to be used by these gods in any way that these gods wanted to use them. Because that's what they do. In fact, when we get to the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are actually going to call Israel whores. And you're like, wow, God. That, that's a word that we don't like anybody using in our church when we make them eat soap. But God, like, actually calls them that. They worshiped them. They quickly turned aside from the path that their ancestors had walked. Their ancestors had obeyed Yahweh's commands, but they did not. When Yahweh raised up leaders for them, Yahweh was with each leader and delivered the people from their enemies while their leader remained alive. Yahweh felt sorry for them when they cried out in agony because of what their harsh oppressors did to them. Notice how God's deliverance is also an emotional deliverance. It's not just a mechanical, if you obey me, I'll deliver you. If you don't obey me, I will not. It's very emotional. Because Yahweh felt sorry for them when they cried out for their oppressors. God said that to Moses too. I have heard my people's cries in anguish. In fact, we're going to get later in the book of Judges 
where God is going to come to them and they're going to cry out to God and he says, I'm done. I'm done. You've cried out so many times and I delivered you so many times and nothing changes. I don't care if you cry out. And then they cry out even more and even more and God can't take it and he delivers them because they're his children. Now they also do another thing. They bury their idols. And that's that's the main key of repentance. But there's an emotional side to God. You see that with Jesus. Oh, Israel, how I long to gather you together in my arms like a mother hen gathers her chicks. There's an emotional side there. Yahweh felt sorry for them when they cried out in agony because of what their, their harsh oppressors did to them. When they lead or die, the next generation would again act more wickedly than the previous one. Notice the downward spiral. The next generation becomes more evil than the previous and they would follow after the other gods, worshiping them and bowing down to them. And they did not give up their practices or their stubborn ways. Later, God's going to call them stiff-necked people. They will not turn back to the way of God. Yahweh was furious with Israel. He said, this nation has violated the terms of the agreement I made with their ancestors by disobeying me. So I will no longer remove them from any before them any of the nations that Joshua left unconquered when they died. Joshua left those nations to test Israel. I wanted to see whether or not the people would carefully walk in the path marked out by Yahweh as their ancestors were careful to do. So here he makes it very clear. I intentionally left nations behind to test the next generation to see if they could demonstrate the same faith as Joshua. And they failed. This is why Yahweh permitted these nations to remain and did not conquer them immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. He did not permit these nations because he was weak. He permitted these nations to test his people and because they disobey. These were the nations that Yahweh permitted to remain so he could use them to test Israel. Now, this is a powerful statement that is going to be very much emphasized when we get to the prophets. We often think of Israel being God's chosen nation. And he is their God, and he does things with them with his divine hand. But even though the other nations are not his chosen people, they still are his nations. And he makes it very clear that he says, these are the nations that Yahweh used. They may not be his chosen people that he's going to use them to produce the Messiah that will redeem the world, but he still uses them. And he uses them to test Israel. He uses them for them to faith. He allowed them to become powerful. He allowed them to be used. And we saw this when we come to Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses says, hey, you didn't conquer the land of Israel, Canaan, because you didn't have faith in God. But I, before you came along, I gave Edom the land that they had. And I gave the Ammonites the land that they had. And I gave the Moabites the land they have. I was with them and delivered them because they were descendants of Abraham. If I can take the pagan nations that are not my chosen people and deliver them and use them in however I want and bless them, then how much more can I do with the people that I've chosen? And we need to realize that this is the point that Paul is going to make. Our leaders in our nation are in power for reasons. God, No matter how much you say, I don't vote for him and he's not the right leader, and I would agree, God allows these leaders for reasons. 
He allows these leaders. And God makes it very clear in the Bible, he is the one that brings kings into power, and he takes them out. And I can take guesses at why, but I'm not going to speak in ignorance because I'm not a prophet. But what I can say for a fact is that God has the people in power for a reason. And that reason can be to bless us, or that reason could be to oppress us so that we cry out and come back to God. But I'm not going to say specifically, I can take guesses in my knowledge, but God forbid that I speak as a prophet when I have no right. But I will say God has them there for a reason. And the question we need to ask is always, how is this leader pointing me towards God? Because either way, God is using them to bring you back to God. He's using them to bring you back to God because they're an incredibly godly leader that you're to follow back to God. Or they're using them because they're a horrible person who's oppressing you for you to cry out to God because you realize that your Democratic or Republican Party failed you when you thought they were going to change the world. And they didn't. But either way, God is using them to bring them back to you, to God. And that's the question. And that, I know is a fact. I know that's a fact. Before we're also quick to say, let's assassinate them, and I know nobody's here saying that, but we might be hoping that they get somebody else does it for us, or, oh, they're so evil and bad, or I'm not going to support them, or I'm going to just bash them on Facebook, because I also don't encourage bashing. As much as I'm horrified by the positive comments, I'm also horrified by the bashing. What we ultimately need to ask is, how is God using them to bring me back and my nation back to him? Because God put them there for a reason. Verse 2. He left those nations simply because he wanted to teach the subsequent generations of Israelites who had not experienced earlier battles how to conduct holy war. Or one can interpret it in today's language as he left those people in power for the next generations to teach them how to conduct spiritual warfare and prayer. Because that's our holy war today. As not the nation of God, but as the people of God. We still are fighting holy warfare. It's just not national political. It's spiritual prayer. One of the reasons that God allows oppressive things in our country is to teach you how to go to God and conduct spiritual warfare. These were the nations. The five lords of the Philistines which live on the western coast of Israel, up against the Mediterranean Sea. All the Canaanites, which are mostly up in this West Manasseh region, right between the Dead Sea and up in the Sea of Galilee. The Sidonians, which are above Asher here. They're unmarked, but they're way north up there above Asher on the map. The Hivites, the Hivites living in Mount Lebanon, or the Hivites are down here in the Benjamin-Judah territory. Living in Mount Lebanon, in Mount Baal, Hermon, and Lebanon, they also were in the north too. They were left to test Israel so Yahweh would know if this people would obey the commands he had gave his ancestors through Moses. And that's a huge question. If you, when you look at America... And you think of all the bad things that are happening. Remember, there's that tension. Be real. And there are things that are not godly. But also don't lose the hope that God has abandoned us and there's no hope and it's the end of the world kind of a thing. 
But the question you need to be asking is, how should I respond? And what God is saying right here is that these are here to see if the people would obey the commands that Yahweh gave. When you see things in America, do you immediately resort to complaining, hopelessness, bashing? Or does it make you want to pray all the more and get back to what God commanded the family to be, a Deuteronomic family? Because I'll tell you right now, the two best things that you can do in America's... And I'm not saying I'm doing an awesome job at this. Okay? I'm trying. Okay? The good thing about teaching these books is like... You're, you, I spend a lot of time in these books te- learning and reading and studying and writing and teaching. And you're like, okay, God, I, I, I've been writing and saying this a lot now. I think I've gotten the message. Now I've got to actually do it. But I really think the two major keys to getting back into what we're supposed to be as a people of God is to become a Deuteronomic family. And if you don't know what that means, go back to my Deuteronomy study and to really seriously start praying. And God has allowed this to happen in America. He's allowed us to decline because we started trusting in America more than God. And he's trying to test us to see, will we get back to Deuteronomy? Will we get back to prayer? And that's the question. And that's the only way. It's not who you vote for. The person you vote for is not going to change America. I mean, you guys have been around long enough to know that nothing changes. It's, it's, not, it's not fighting the drug wars. It's not stopping technology. And I'm not saying that those aren't worthy investments. But ultimately, it's getting back to a Deuteronomic family and getting back to prayer. Verse 5, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took the Canaanite daughters as wives and gave their daughters to the Canaanites. They worshiped their gods as well. And that became the problem. When they begin to live among the people who were not godly and they begin to marry and intermarry with them. Because here's the thing. The minute you marry somebody with a different god, the person comes to your house and brings their gods. And then they begin to raise your children with their gods and then the next generation is gone and when the entire culture is morally compromised it is much easier for your kids to follow the parent that matches the culture than the one who's trying to go the right way now i can point to a lot of families where they have split parents and one is godly and one's not and the kids have followed the godly route but that's, those are exceptions. Most of the time when an entire culture is godly and you have a godly and ungodly parent, with the culture and the parent, they're more likely to go that route. And that's what begins to happen. And this becomes their compromise. And here's the question. I think as Christians we need to sit down and talk a lot more what it means to be in the world and not of it. Because that's the other thing that we've done a lot of is we're being entertained in a lot of the same ways as the world. And we're not filtering like we used to. Remember, this is universal. I'm not saying you and you and you and you are not. I'm just saying overall, the church has kind of done a bad job. And most of our filtering has more to do with like cuss words and violence than it actually has to do with worldview. I'm telling you right now, it was far more lethal in your kid's life 
is not the R-rated movie with all the violence and the sex and the cussing. And I'm not saying those are okay. But the greater weapon that Satan is using is the worldview that is being promoted by these directors. And there are so many movies that have nothing wrong. And they totally pass the kids in mind or the parent guide review. And you look it up and it's like no violence, no nudity and that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, it's a good okay movie. But then you watch it and the worldview is horrific. And a lot of parents are like, but, but there was no violence and there was no cussing. Why, why, why are you not letting your girls watch this? Like, because the worldview is horrible. And the worldview shapes kids more than cussing and violence does. And I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying the subtle message of Disney, where parents are always dead and gone, and, 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 all, and other things, I can go movie after movie after movie, is way more powerful than any kind of R-rated thing that we normally screen against. That's the most important thing that you need to understand, is the culture has more effective ways than just bad things. This is God's commentary on the culture. This is God's brief commentary, his brief summary on the culture of Israel. And so those are the points. Now what God is going to do is he's going to go through six major cycles. He's going to show you how that commentary that he just gave you is actually practically happening in the lives of individual leaders in a slow, compromised downward spiral until we end up into a horrific nightmare scenario at the end of the book. Does this make sense? Yes. 